Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Beth Allison Barr. Beth Allison Barr is a professor of history at Baylor University, where she teaches undergraduate courses on European women, medieval history, and world history, as well as graduate courses on women and religion in the medieval and early modern world, medieval sermons, medieval Britain, and feminist theory. She's the author of many books, including the best-selling book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Dr. Barr writes regularly on The Anxious Bench and has contributed to Religion News Service, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, The Dallas Morning News, Sojourners, Baptist News Global, and so on and so forth. Her work has been featured by NPR and The New Yorker. I wanted to talk with her because I found her work on history and scripture illuminating regarding the role of women and even how women's roles have been obscured in favor of interpretations of scripture that aren't accurate to the historical facts. So I don't know if you've ever been sitting at Mass and you get to the Pauline readings and you hear women to be quiet and all these kinds of things, and you're like, what? So I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation I have with her because we delve into all of that. And we also delve very deeply into what evangelical Christians call complementarianism and how that aligns with patriarchy, whereas we as Catholics believe in something called complementarity. And we'll, we'll delve into that because we see a lot of that complementarianism from evangelical Christianity having an impact. And in fact, I even see some strains of it in certain tratty circles of Catholicism, which troubles me because it's not Catholic. And we talk about also how that kind of theology also has impacted the evangelical church's response to their own sexual abuse crisis. There's so much here that we can learn. There's so much here that we actually need to pray about and meditate on and begin to think more clearly and justly about the role of women. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by clicking the follow button on your favorite podcast listening app and by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Beth Allison Barr is up next. Beth, welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk to you with your medieval history background, your understanding of evangelical Christianity and the Bible and women in the Bible. I'm just, I'm looking forward to having this discussion because we in the Catholic Church are actually dealing with what I think are misrepresentations 
of writings from our Holy Fathers about women and women's roles in the world and household. And it, maybe even it's just a sliver of Catholicism that's doing that, misrepresenting, I think, what the church teaches. But I think there's a larger problem in Christianity in general in trying to understand women, women's roles, and whatnot. And so I'm excited to have this conversation with you about what's been happening with evangelical Christianity and their understanding, or should I say, maybe misunderstanding of the Bible vis-a-vis women. And so I'm hoping to learn from you in that regard. So thank you for joining the podcast to have this discussion with me. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. So let me just jump right into it. What is the prevailing understanding of patriarchy and complementarianism among evangelical Christians? Yeah, so I argue that there is no difference between patriarchy and complementarianism. But the point of my book was to try to help evangelical Christians understand what their theology about complementarianism actually is, that it is simply historic patriarchy. The term complementarianism, it's confusing because it's a term that actually used to be used by evangelical Christians to talk about the complementary roles of the sexes, how you could still be male and female, but also be equal. And it was taken over in 1987, 1986 and 87, by a group of men who became the founders of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Mm. And they purposefully chose the word complementarianism because they thought it sounded better than simply saying patriarchy. Mm. So Mm. it's an artificial term that was used because they thought patriarchy sounded mean and didn't give across the impression they wanted. And they thought complementarianism sounded nicer. Mm. And it introduced a new way of using complementarianism which is this hierarchical way that, you know, essentially, yes, women still belong under male headship, but, oh, of course, they're completely equal. So my understanding of patriarchy is, and I take the understanding that a lot of feminists do, is a system of domination. Yeah. Unjust domination of women. And so instead of saying that, they chose complementarianism. That's exactly right. And also, I will say, when I was reading the book in the beginning, I came across the term complementarianism, then I saw what they were meaning by it. It was very hard for me as someone mm-hmm. who understands complementarity, you know, and theology of the body and, right. and, and it's something very different. And so I was really struggling yeah. with how they arrived at mm-hmm. what some would call Christian patriarchy. Oh, yeah. So, you know, when you think about what patriarchy is, it is indeed a systemic oppression of women. It's a Mm -hmm. power, but it is also its side effect is that it oppresses women, but patriarchy centers men. It's a male-centered theology, a male-centered practice, male-centered society where women always come second. It's also usually a structure that's tied up with racism in some way. So it's not just all men. It's some men, Mm -hmm. certain men who have this type of authority and power over others. So I think the reason, you know, if you think about 
the term complementarity and why it became popular, why they chose to use it is because it was a reaction to 1960s, more radical feminism in some ways that really emphasized something that I think is true, that instead of looking at men and women first as different, what if we looked at them as both human, as made in the image of God and image bearers? And if we start with women and men being human, then that makes us less likely to end up at these hierarchical understandings. Radical feminism pushed that even further to sort of almost argue, you know, some arguments were that all gender was culturally constructed and that there was really almost no difference. And so that was a very small part of that radical feminist movement. But nonetheless, there was this strong reaction to it that we have to reclaim what it means to be a male and what it means to be a woman. And with that also was this idea that we need to maintain male-centeredness of the church. So women's roles, yes, they're made in the image of God, but they are made always to be subordinate to men. And And (laughs) then they chose the word complementarity because it sounded better. I I mean, that's really it. So it was not, I would say, in my opinion, to me, it doesn't sound like it was a real deep examination (laughs) of, you know, women and, you know, women having souls and women having the God-given ability to reason and what we contribute to the sanctification of the world and what we can teach about God. And so (laughs) that's unfortunate. So it was all cultural reaction, sounds like, really. Yes, it was. Mm. That's exactly right. Well, you know, in the Catholic Church, we have been dealing with a sexual abuse crisis. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading your book, I was coming to the conclusion that patriarchy and complementarianism impacted the evangelical Christian response to sexual abuse. It did. So how did it affect the response to sexual abuse in uh, evangelical circles with pastors and youth pastors? Yeah. Well, if you think about, you know, what I said, that patriarchy centers men. And if you think about a church that has decided to emphasize men as the center and men as the primary religious authorities, then what they do is they focus on protecting those men. And the emphasis is on protecting the male leaders instead of protecting the people they harm. And this, if you think, you know, the sexual abuse cover-up, which went on for decades, Mm -hmm. was concentrated in churches that lean towards more complementarian understandings. It's not exclusively within those. You can think about big names like Bill Hybels, who actually argued for egalitarianism, that women have the right to be preachers, etc. But at the same time, the framework in which he worked was still this more conservative framework that emphasized authoritarian leaders Mm. and emphasized his power over those of others. And the instinct of his church, again, was to protect him Mm. at the cost of the women. So it seems to me buried within, you know, this theology that centers men teaches that women are less, are the ones less worthy of being protected. And this, you know, clearly came out and the way that men responded to these women that you know they circled the wagons 
and they argued that women were not telling the truth. Mm. They tried to denigrate them as being sexually active in other ways and therefore maybe deserving of what happened to them. Mm. And they simply refused to bring charges, you know, to the public and they hid them. So it's, I would argue it's a consequence of a theology that centers men at the cost of women. How did they reconcile that with this men being faithful within marriage? Because some of these men were obviously married. Yeah. If you are saying, okay, we expect fidelity in marriage and this and the other, and then you have a passive congregation who is married, then you come to find out he has abused, yep. raped all that people in the congregation. How do they, what kind of Jedi mind trick do they do to get around that? I mean, I'm just, yeah. Because I mean, to me, that seems like, well, look, dude, I mean, this is like in, in the most foul, obvious way, he's violated something we hold to be sacred, you know? So, so again, I would be on your side that it is course. a Jedi mind trick here. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that we see them emphasize over and over. You can also see this with some recent arguments defending slaveholders, which we have seen coming out of the same group of white male evangelical leaders, Mm. is they argue that the gospel, what's important is spreading the gospel. And so if you can think about this with the whole Ravi Zacharias ministry scandal, people were like, he was doing so much good for the gospel that we essentially decided to protect him. Can you give us a little mini nugget on the Ravi scandal? Because I'm sure there's some listeners that are like, who? What? Oh, yeah. Google him. Look him up. He was a very major evangelical leader who was not white, which was one of the reasons why I think he was put forward. He spoke a lot on evangelism. You know, he taught about evangelism and taking the gospel to the whole world. And it was found out that not only had he been unfaithful to his wife that he had been married to, but he was involved in many affairs in massage parlors that he also paid for and sponsored and the abuse of women within those that were covered up by his ministry team for years. And as I said, the reason that kept being put forward was that he was doing so much good for the gospel. You know, I I have to tell you, I've heard something similar. Actually, I was speaking with a priest and we were talking about the abuse of indigenous people. Yeah. And one of his responses to me was, we brought them the gospel. And I was like, but that doesn't absolve us of than actually living the gospel as we're bringing it to people. That's exactly right. But it's almost as if we cannot process it, that while someone may be doing something good, they could also simultaneously be doing something evil that contradicts what they're preaching, that their practice is not in conformity with their preaching. And and it's almost like we don't want to do, we don't know what to do with that. Right. And so we make excuses, which I think is a failure, actually, of those of us who claim to follow Christ, Right. But I also want to say, though, I think there's some conditioning of our thoughts, right? So if you've been conditioned to believe that women serve these roles and men serve that role, like women are always to be subservient and men are always to be leaders, I I do say your culpability is diminished some when you face these these situations because your whole way of thinking has been, you've been kind of stripped of the ability to to go in there and reason through this because of mm-hmm. how that's been presented. And maybe you could talk a little bit about even your experience in that regard. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. I think that 
this is one of the reasons this is theology is so hard to uproot because people really believe it. They believe this is what the word of God is teaching. Um, they believe that to be faithful Christians, they have to adhere to these types of gender roles. And they believe that this is God's plan for them and their family. A lot of women, you know, some of the saddest conversations I've had with women are those who gave up a ministry calling for what they believed was really what they were supposed to be doing, which was living this type of role. And, you know, they write to me and they say, it's too late for me, but I hope maybe another generation can do what God called them to do. So I think we have to, you know, understand that people really believe this. Mm -hmm. And when they really believe that this type of hierarchy should be in place, when they really believe that they are called to submit to the headship of their husbands and that their husbands have authority over them, then it's really hard to get them to understand that how their husbands are treating them is abusive. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can speak from experience on that. Not with my husband, but... Yeah, yeah. Not that your husband... <laughs> okay, to be clear, no, not at all with your husband being abusive. I actually thought your husband was very bomb when a, I was reading the book. I yeah. was like, ah, I like this guy. He, he, you like I him like too. him too. Yeah, he's, he's really wonderful. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but he also, you know, we can think about this with people that we've talked to and with mm -hmm. other people that are in. I mean, it's really hard to separate it out. And I think, you know, another famous video that people can go Google if they want to is one by John Piper, who is very famous evangelical leader, former Baptist pastor, um, heads desiring God, also part of the passion conferences, etc. And he has a video, I think it's from 1987 or something, maybe 1984, where somebody asked him, what should a wife do if her husband was abusing her? And he said, well, you know, it's okay for her to be smacked for one night or so. And then she, as long as her life is not in danger, and then she goes and tells the leaders of the church. And, you know, sort of this idea that men had to deal with this male problem and that she was still under the submissive role to both this abusive husband as well as only to the male leaders in the church. And it's not until after people called him on it that he finally did, not a retraction, but he said, oh, yeah, maybe, she, you know, she should call the police. And I mean, oh, it just shows wow. you those attitudes that yeah. women belong under male authority. And it's really hard to get women who have been conditioned in this, as well as men who have been conditioned that they are owed this authority to break out of that. And, you know, I had been uh, just on the edges reading a little bit of Jordan Peterson, and oh, he gosh. talks about hierarchies being yeah. this natural thing. Mm -hmm. And I also then see a certain population of Christians really like jumping on that. Yeah. And then I also see Jordan Peterson's open hostility toward diversity mm -hmm. and equity and inclusion. And I wonder how much of that also then comes back in and influences Christianity or maybe Christianity, people's patriarchal Christianity, having this hostility to what people now derisively brand as woke, yeah. at least when it comes to racial justice. And so I'm I'm trying to make sense yeah. of all these things and trying to not fall prey to it, frankly. Right. 
once you buy into a theory of oppression, it is much easier to buy into other theories of oppression. Once you accept the idea that there is something innate about the way some people are born that makes them able to hold leadership in a way that other people cannot, it makes it much more easy for you to argue even further that not only does it have to do with sex, but maybe it also has to do with skin color, Mm -hmm. um, with ethnicity, that some people are divinely called to be leaders in ways that other people are not. I mean, these go hand in hand. They are rooted in Western European imperialism, at least the most modern form of them. Mm -hmm. And of course, my whole argument in the making of biblical womanhood is that this theory of subjugation within the church is not of God, that it is of human sin. Yes. And racism is of human sin. These are hierarchies of oppression. And it's not that we shouldn't have governance, you know, good governance, I think, is important within societies. The problem with these types of hierarchies is that they argue that there are some people that no matter what they do, they are always called to be in leadership over others. It's something that makes it innate within us rather than something we have earned or shown that we are mature enough to handle. And it's interesting that when you hear people argue hierarchies are natural, but then when they perceive that there will be an order that they think gives power to people, other people. Well, that's right. you know wrong. That's I was exactly like, oh, but right. I thought you said hierarchies were natural. It's exactly yeah, only right. Only natural when I'm the one. In power. That's how you can always test it. We'll be back in a minute. But the other thing I think that we don't think about is what if we're misunderstanding? Yeah, you know, scripture, the scriptures they've been taking in. So let's get into it because yeah, sure. I've heard the term household narratives. So what are the household narratives? Right. So if you think about where modern white evangelical complementarian teachings, where they get their teeth from, it's in the letters of Paul primarily in what we call the household codes. We can think about these are manifest in several of his letters, but like Ephesians 5, which says wives submit to their husbands, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church, et cetera, et cetera. These are the household code narratives. And these often are used. It's like, here's the clear hierarchy. Here's, you know, this hierarchy that God ordained. And the problem is, is that what we don't realize is that Paul is speaking into a society telling Christians how to live within the non-Christian world in which they are. And this non-Christian world in which they lived was a world that had this gender hierarchy, that women were to be under the authority of their husbands. And this wasn't just in the Roman Empire. As I said, this is uh, something that we find in ancient cultures throughout. But nonetheless, if you look at Paul's household codes within that context, what you see is that Paul is actually not reinforcing that type of gender hierarchy. What he is doing, he's calling Christians to be better. He's calling husbands not to exercise the power of life and death over their wives, but instead to love their wives and give their lives up for them as Christ gives up his life for the church. And yes, he does say wives submit to their husbands, but that line before he says husbands and wives are to submit to each other. As to the Lord, he frames it in this call for mutual submission and that that's the framer of it. It's not the hierarchy. It's that we are called to submit to each other as to the Lord and that husbands, this power of life and death is actually that rugs pulled out from underneath them with instead of demanding that power over them, you're to give that power up for them. 
So it, contextually, in Roman times, the laws were even silent in terms of addressing people in the household, right? Wasn't it only men that were dressed and how they should behave? And so yeah. the idea that Paul even yeah. brings women into the equation, brings the slave and the child yes. and is so radical to how Roman society was organized at that time and even their understandings of who would even need to be addressed yeah. in the running of a household or household life or law, you know, so even that itself, right? I think you make that point in your book that that itself, even that he even addresses these right. other people outside of the men, you know, because in Roman law, these people were pretty much absent, invisible, yeah. irrelevant, you know, because it's all the power and authority is with the man. Patriarchy centers men. And so their conversations about authority centered men. They were conversations by men, about men, for men. And so, you know, if you think about the context of the house church model, which Paul is addressing here, it has all of the people in the room together and yeah. who Paul is addressing as part of this church. And what we also find, too, is that, you know, the household codes is not the only thing Paul says about women, that we find Paul giving women authority throughout his letters and even recognizing women as leaders of these house churches. And so you cannot simply pull out the household codes and say, this is what women are supposed to do without reconciling them within the context of Paul calling, you know, Junia an apostle and calling Phoebe a deacon and entrusting her with the letter of Romans to be read, i.e. preached to the Roman church. So let me just jump then to Romans <laughs> 16, yeah. Romans chapter 16. How have English Bible translations obscured women's roles oh, in gosh. Romans chapter 16? You know, I, I was trying so hard with this book to help people understand how much translations matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people are like, well, what translation should I use? And I'm like, use a lot of translations <laughs> because that's the everybody has some sort of agenda or bias in it. And what we have found is that the translations that are most prominent within modern Western churches today, within evangelical churches tend to be the KJV, sorry, the King James Version, as well as the English Standard Version. And the English Standard Version is now beginning to be used in Catholic churches as well, which is really mm -hmm. surprising to me. Mm -hmm. But but what we have found is that these Bibles tend to eradicate gender-inclusive language. They use are more likely to use male pronouns, even in places where there are not male pronouns. Mm. And they also do things like render Phoebe instead of being called a deacon. She's either called a servant or there's often a footnote that's put, you know, explaining that she's not the same sort of deacon as the actual deacons, male leaders. Junia has often been rendered masculine. Junius. Um, this is a very late happening in modern English Bible translations. There is no textual evidence for it. It is simply because they argued that a woman couldn't be an apostle. So therefore, her name must be Junius. And even though now they have accepted that Junia has to be a female, you will often find a footnote put with her and or you will find the preposition changed where instead of being outstanding among the apostles, she is recorded as outstanding to the apostles, which means instead of being one of the leaders, she is just well known to the leaders. So very conscious changes, intentional changes meant to minimize the leadership of women. 
Ooh. There's a lot. And because, you know, we're talking in the Catholic Church, we're yeah. talking about deacons and deaconesses yes. and all those kinds of things. So we're having a bit of discussion ourselves uh, on these matters. One of the things that you also pointed out, I think, in Paul writing to the Corinthians, that Paul's writings are a resistance yeah. to their, I would say, you know, their Corinthian way of thinking. Can you just give us an example of what you mean there? So I was building on a deep body of biblical scholarship that argues that in Corinth, you can see this very well in Paul's writings to the Corinthians, that he is often calling out bad practices that in that current church by quoting the bad practices and yeah. then telling them to stop doing them. <laughs> and so this is called the Corinthian quotation theory. There's a lot of biblical scholars that have subscribed to it. Um, the first biblical scholar who brought it to my attention was a man named Charles Talbert, who was a longtime Baylor professor. And within this, what we find is that most of these quotations, people now accept that Paul is indeed quoting the outside world. You know, an example of this, like food is for the body and the body is for food. Food is one of them that he quotes, etc. And so there's several examples within Corinthians. But the only one that we see that is questioned is this one that has to do with women be silent. Beth, I know in your classes, you often have the students read through these quotations for Corinthians, and sometimes hearing it read helps them maybe better understand why you go with the refutation theory of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, much like. St. Thomas Aquinas quotes what's, you know, wrong and then refutes right. it. And you say Paul was trained in that style as well. Exactly. So could you do us the honor of doing for us what you do for your students regarding Paul and the letter of Corinthians? Oh, I'd love to do that. So what I often do for my students is I bring in two versions of 1 Corinthians 14. And the passage that we're looking at specifically is 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 35. And I bring in the revised standard version of the text. And then I bring in the English Standard Version of the text. And the English Standard Version of the text was translated by mostly complementarian, evangelical complementarian church leaders um, for the express purpose of emphasizing female subordination. And it is 95% the RSV, which is the other version that I'm reading from, and the places that they mostly changed it have to do with female authority. So this is what I have them read. So I bring it in with the Revised Standard Version, and this is what it says, 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 35. It says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate as even the law says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. However, Paul doesn't end that passage there. Right after that, it says, what? Did the word of God originate with you or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brethren earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And when we read it that way from the RSV, what we seems to be that instead of Paul telling women to be silent, he's telling men not to make women be silent in the church right. because all should be heard just in decency and in order. Right. Completely transforms it. Completely transforms it. And, 
You know, I think it probably, I will say this, I've met uh, many non-Catholic women who can't stand Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And I was like, well, why? And they were telling me, and I was like, oh, I, you know, I didn't understand that that same way as they were telling me certain things. But I said, I I didn't understand it the way that they were understanding it. So, yeah. But let me just say this. It's not to say that that subjugating women version of Paul isn't rampant in Catholicism too among right. some Catholics. So let me just let me just say this right now. Yeah. It's it it is very much in some quarters, you know, unfortunately, yeah. this idea that women need to be quiet and have to ask their husband for everything. And 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 let me ask this, because this is something that it troubles me with this whole notion that women have to submit in everything to her husband and whatnot. How do these people, and maybe they don't, reconcile that we are made in the image and likeness of God, right? which includes God giving us women the ability to reason. Why did he give us the ability to reason if we were to jettison that and have to be completely dependent on another human being who is also prone to sin? (laughs) So how did they? Oh, yeah. So I, I recently just read a book It's a memoir of a woman. Um, It's going to be published soon. And she said something that just just really jarred me. She said, the wisdom of a woman is always suspect in these spaces. Mm. She tied the imagery back to Eve and Mm. that whenever women are seen, we're seen as if holding the apple out. Everything about us is suspect within these spaces. Mm. And I think That's exactly it, that women are theologically, even though the argument is that women are ontologically not inferior to men, the practice is that we are. Mm. The practice is is that a woman is not able to be as reasonable, that a woman is more likely to respond in emotion, that a woman is less likely to discern the word of God in a way that a male authority can. And regardless of their claims that complementarianism regards women as equal to men, it doesn't. They can say that however they want, but they are arguing that men have the God-given ability to reason, to understand scripture, and to lead in a way that women are incapable of doing. You know, it's something that um, I have encountered much on this idea that women are emotional, emotional, emotional. But I want to also say, could it also be that we are emotional and reasonable at the same time? That our emotion, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. That we're, we're integrated well in that area. And I don't have a problem that I have emotions that actually lead me through reason to do right. good things, right? So in the face of injustice, I am angry. And that anger pushes me to think about what is just, right? Right. And so this sort of idea that because we're emotional, we're flawed, I'm like, no. No. And I think even St. Thomas Aquinas maybe even spoke about anger can um, send you to rightly ordered actions against injustice. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is just really, really surprising. It's a 
you know, it's a really modern idea. It's sort of post-scientific revolution, this idea that women and men's brains are different and that men are more rational and women are less rational. It's also a very old idea, but it is an incorrect idea (laughs) because it also removes from men the ability Mm -hmm. to express emotion. And so, I mean, it's not only a dangerous idea for women that denigrates women, but it's also a dangerous idea for men because it teaches men that they are supposed to repress this type of emotion and that they are able to do it in a way that's better than women are. Mm -hmm. Again, it reinforces this hierarchy. So it's a dangerous idea. I also think it says something dangerous about God. Yes. In that somehow God made women flawed. Yep. It says that God didn't make us correctly in some way and that they have to correct the order by acting in place of God. Really? Yeah. Right? Because they know all that is moral and right and correct, and we just have to submit to it uncritically. Yes. And to me, that is just such an abuse Mm -hmm. of human relationship, abuse of the plan for the human person, because I cannot see justifying this in light of the fact that we, too, are made in the image and likeness of God, that we've been given reason. We've been given the same faculties, all these things that make us human, not animals, right? Above, you know, unthinking animals. And yet we're asked, in my opinion, to be behave like unthinking animals. Yeah. And But, oh gosh, I wish we had so much more time to talk. But, you know, I found your book completely fascinating. I'm so glad you wrote it. I hope to have you on again so we can have continued discussions because there's so much I'd like to know about evangelical Christianity and how they reconcile the Blessed Virgin Mary, how they see Mary Magdalene, the Apostle to the Apostles, and all those sorts of things. And of course, to be able to talk with you more about medieval Catholic understanding of female saints. Yeah. You know, I would love to do that. Just, oh, I can't wait. We have to, we have to have to have another discussion. Thank you so much for joining me on the Gloria Purvis podcast. And yeah, everybody run out and get her book. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media, is produced by Maggie Van Dorn, and is engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.